Good morning, church. As we celebrate being a reconciled people, unity, what you see represented on that screen is not just a bunch of folk that speak a common language, but one would have to understand that the, the divisions that are even between those countries is remarkable. And the fact that you see that many countries with that many different, quote, cultures that are assembled together in GCC Latino, that in itself models everything that we're trying to build here at Grace Covenant Church. So we absolutely love Pastor Victor. Pastor Isabel, I, I had the privilege of meeting them some years ago, um, learned about them through actually a church in Cali, Colombia that I had visited, and that, that's where they originally came from. And as I had been traveling around the world for, for two and a half decades, traveling to Latin countries, and then realizing that here at home that we had nothing that represented that. And just realize, you know, God wants a Latino congregation here in this part of the world. And so we are just so blessed to have Pastor Victor and Isabel leading that effort. Amen? Turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Want to get into the Word quickly this morning. And let's just, uh, let's just go old school for a moment. Genesis, the second chapter. The Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do it, you're going to die. So what did they do? Genesis 3. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good, pleasing to the eye, desirable for, for gaining wisdom. She took some of it, ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Amazing. Everything available to them. One command. One choice to make. And look what they did. Romans 5. And consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many would be made sinners righteous. And what was the catalyst? What is the catalyst for any act of obedience or disobedience? It's the power of choice. It's the power of choice. Wednesday, I lost it. I mean bad, big time. I mean just, just name a bad attitude. Just think of a bad word. Think of almost any unsanctified emotion that you can have. And I let it rip. I'm letting, I'm letting you, as one of your pastors, I'm letting you know. That's not just feet of clay. But I'm, I, I don't know why. There was mm, ugly stuff. And what happened, what had happened was, we, we, we live up in, the, in a mountain, in a mountain and it takes a while to get to civilization. And so I was trying to make a run into town. Now, you don't make a run into town where I live. So it's 20 to 25 minutes to get to where you're going. 
So, you know, we wind down the mountain and you drive down 66 for a moment. Got out of my car and I had a fairly tight time window. And begin to realize that the place that, like most places, one has to have what? Guess what I did not have? None were in the car. Now, like you, I have collected a few dozen of these so far. They're everywhere, all kinds of different colors and fabrics and, you know, just as a fashion statement. I had none in the car. Now, it's 25 minutes to go back home, 25 minutes to get back to where I'm currently sitting. And I had a flesh fit. I lost it. Called my wife. Let her have it. Like it was her fault. But I had to blame somebody other than me. I mean, it was so bad this week that I, my, my wife actually scored a new Apple Watch and a new Instapot as a result. That's how bad it was. I was furious. But I thought to myself, why am I so angry? Well, you're old and you're an idiot. I got that. But that's, that's not a new condition. Where did all of this angst come from? And some of you have felt the very same stuff. Oh, maybe it, came, it comes out in a more sanctified manner than mine did on Wednesday. But the angst and the anger is still in most of us. We're frustrated at best. And we're angry at worst. What's the real issue? Is it, is it COVID? Is it really for some, certainly, whether direct or indirectly, that have had effect, but to, to mask or not to mask. I mean, is it just polarized political ideology or is it scientific epidemiology? It's hard to tell the difference anymore. Is it COVID the real issue or is it just masking another issue, if you wish? What have, we, what have we really lost in this moment? Let me give you a thought. Because I've, I've had a chance to ponder this for a while. And not just looking and trying to assess some of my own reactions. But watching some men and women around me that I love and I respect lose it. And different, they're, they're, they're different means of, quote, losing it. What's been lost? It's very simple. A loss of choice, and with it, a loss of control. That's the real thing that we are responding and we're reacting to. The international community looks on the United States and they say, what, it, what are you guys doing? 
Last week, I was on the phone with some of our European pastors and some of our pastors in the UK, and, and, they, and they look on at the United States, and they look at our response in this moment, and they're saying, what is with you people? I mean, around the world right now, as, 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 as the numbers are beginning to move in, in, in a wrong direction, we're seeing from Germany to Spain to Italy, we're beginning to see regulations that they thought had long since been lifted. Now they're coming back on. And they, and they look at us from a distance and they say, I, I, I don't understand. Because as a collective in, in most of these nations, folk just say, Wear a mask. And guess what? They put the mask on. That's the beginning and the end of it. It doesn't become a, a personal right or a civil right or a religious right issue. It's just what they do as a, as a collective. Now, I'm not here to, to tout one nation or one form of government over the next. That's not, that's not what this is truly about. But for many of us, we equate, we equate freedom with control and control with choice. And when denied, we react. Like I did on Wednesday. And yet our greatest freedom is often found in our greatest loss of control. Let me repeat that. That our greatest freedom is often truly found in our greatest loss of control. Hence the title of this message this morning, Choice, Freedom Defined or Freedom Denied. And as a starting point, I believe it's important that we clarify the difference between what the Bible calls freedom and how we many times individually, nationally, culturally, how we might define freedom. Because they're not aligned as much as we would sometimes like to believe. And without the time to unpack this, because I'm still in, in my introduction this morning, biblical freedom is defined as much in terms of a freedom from as juxtaposed to just a freedom to. You see, we most of the time when we think freedom, it's a I get to, to do, to have, to express. This is, it's a freedom to. But yet when you get to the Bible and you get to these great truths of Scripture, we find that real freedom begins in a freedom from something, not just a freedom to something. Romans chapter 8, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, set me free from what? The law of sin and death. Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That's the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's a freedom from, prerequisite of a freedom to. It's important we understand that. Because if we continue to superimpose our American understanding of freedom 
and try to somehow shoehorn that into biblical truth of what freedom really is, we're going to wind up at best with a janky theology. And at worst, we're going to find ourselves in continual conflict with what God has said about the matter. So let me take a few moments and consider freedom and the power of choice this morning. The very first are consequences. With every choice you make, there's a corresponding consequence. Real simple. These consequences are, of course, of varying significance. One donut or all 12. I mean, God, God boxes them in dozens. With a clear implication, they're to be consumed at one time. And the issue of one glorious orb and the 300 calories thereof, you know, there's not a lot of consequence. I mean, you can eventually work that off. But when you sit down and, and you hit three or 4,000 calories by diving into the whole box, the long-term consequences of that decision could have impact minimally on your waistline, maximally perhaps on your cholesterol. The first family, you eat, you die. But I give you the power to choose. Now, somehow I think we've got to cut the first couple some slack. First of all, I wonder if they understood the concept of death in that particular moment. You eat, you die. I don't even know what death means. I mean, in this particular moment, no animals have given their life for their, either their covering or their sustenance. So you wonder, what did they really understand about that word? And they certainly didn't understand any idea of the consequences of Romans 5, that through the disobedience of the one, the many would be made unrighteous. They had no concept that in that moment of eating one apple off one tree that it would have the generational impact on the entire planet that it would. I think we have to cut them a little bit of slack. Likewise, many times in our choice and our decision making, do we realize and recognize the decisions that we make today, what generational impact that it might have? And I'm not just talking about those things that we identify perhaps as generational curses. I'm talking about the fact that we have the opportunity in our generation to set forth either a pattern of blessing or a pattern of cursing by the choices and decisions that we make right now. And we may not even be aware in so doing how it's going to affect the children's children's children that Pastor Miata mentioned this morning. We don't know. Neither did Adam and Eve. But it, as we grow up, we begin to realize that our, our choices carry with them implications for others. It's not just for us. I mean, for instance, if I dive in and I do continue to eat the donuts by the dozen, as happy as it is, more than likely, it's going to have some type of effect on my health somewhere in the future that will probably affect 
my longevity or quality of life that will have direct impact on my wife and or my children. That, I mean, we, we can see that with our own natural eyes. How much more those choices that we make today, those generations that we have not seen with our natural eyes yet, that it might have upon them. Very interesting. But it should impact not only our decisions, but the process of how we arrive at those decisions. Abram and Lot, they're both herdsmen. And they've wound up in conflict is that there's too many animals and not enough. And so we, we find in Genesis 13, Abram said, just decide. Just choose. You go that way, I'll go this. And so Lot looked up, Genesis 13, verses 10 through 12. He saw the whole plain of the Jordan, well watered. It's beautiful. It says, so Lot chose for himself the plain of Jordan and set out toward the east. He just made a natural decision. Not anything in this moment necessarily sinful or unrighteous. But the, and the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plains. But there's only one problem. He pitched his tents where? Near Sodom. And of course, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, but what's significant about this? It says that Lot chose what? For himself. There was no inquiry whatsoever. Is that it looks good, let's go do it. And how many times does that become the basis of our decision making? Oh, it looks good. It's beautiful. It'll work. It fits in the budget. It's worked before. Let's go for it. But there was no inquiry whatsoever. And as a result of this natural decision, it almost cost him his life. And we find Uncle Abraham having to go rescue him at the last moment. He chose for himself. But you see, Lot was afraid in this decision-making that somehow it wouldn't be the best decision. It wouldn't, it wouldn't bring the greatest benefit to me. So herein then becomes number two. If number one is consequences of our decisions, number two is the conflict thereof. FOMO, the fear of missing out. But can I submit to you that there's an even greater fear? It's the fear of making the wrong decision. And we all have it. We all have it. We go to a restaurant and we ponder the menu. And we're listening around the table to what everybody else is ordering. And we're terrified that somebody, what? They're going to make a better decision about dinner than I'm going to make. Pastor Brett and I have a mutual friend. And I mean, and it, it, it's the biggest decision of the day for this individual. Well, what are you having, champ? What, what are you going to order? You know, and then you place your order, and then he's like, regret. Buyer's regret immediately kicks in. It's like, man, I should have gotten that. And it's not a problem because he's going to eat half your food off your plate anyway. So he's going to get what you ordered regardless. I'll leave this individual anonymous except to say that he preached here last week. 
But I watch him and he's terrified because he's looking around. Who did I make the right decision? Who, who, who should have gotten a different cheese on the cheeseburger? I mean, he just, but we do the same thing all the time. And in that indecision is paralysis. What, 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 what if I, what if I make the, sometimes it doesn't matter. Just order the American cheese. It'll be all right. And the chaos of choice, too many of them, many times. Oh, I just, I'm just longing for a simpler time. Keep longing. First of all, it may have been simpler, but it wasn't easier. There's a big difference in those two words. You see, what was the one thing that made it a simpler time? A limitation of choices. I mean, think about it for a moment. The glory of Wegmans. 120,000 feet of glorious choice. Any of you ever walked out of Wegmans like this? And you went in for milk. And you came out with three different types of salmon. And artisan breads and fruit that you don't know what to do with. And you went in for milk. And then we go into Aldi's. And you can see both walls. You can almost touch them. And they got weird stuff in there. But it's a very deliberate experience that we're going to limit your choices and in so doing, we're going to get you in and out of here. It's interesting. It's a completely different phenomenon. Entertainment choices. When we were kids, there were three channels. PBS didn't count because it came in fuzzy. And when the president was on, he preempted all three channels and we couldn't watch Gilligan's Island or Flipper and life was over. The president's on! I'm not going to be able to see Flipper. People saying, what's Flipper? <laughs> it's okay. It's a superhero. <laughs> but now we can barely watch one thing on YouTube and we're looking down at the other videos connected. Oh, that looks even better. And we're clicking around about every six to 12 seconds because, oh, that must be a better one. Oh, that, oh, there's another one. Oh, 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 I didn't know kitty cats could do that. Click, 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 click. And those choices, they're destroying brain cells, critical thinking. There's a book called What the Internet's Doing to Our Brain. It's another book called The Shallows. And it talks about how our ability to think through problems and, and apply principles of logic in all of these choices, it's been broken down. How many of you have a hard time sitting down and reading an entire book now? Okay. And it's not that, it's not that you're not intelligent. I mean, we got through school, we had to get it, we, we, we sort of had to do it. 
But the reality is we're finding it increasingly difficult. Why? Because of the other choices available to us in any given moment. Wow. And consumers drive that acceleration. But to what end? Conflict, confusion, less rather than greater contentment. And it begs the question, then is choice truly freedom? Is it freedom denied or defined? And once again, it's important that we understand well the difference between how the Bible defines that and how we both define and experience that. We also have to die to certain freedoms in order to obtain greater ones. You see, this is another thing that we're not taught in a worldly, worldly understanding of choice. Because somewhere we think we can have it all. But one of the things that we recognize, one of the great truths of the kingdom is one of exchange. You give over one thing in order to have another. We give over death for life, sin for righteousness, ourself for the person of Christ. There's a constant exchange going on in the currency of the kingdom, if you wish. We don't continue to collect, but we continue to give over in order to come into greater freedom. And yet what that means for us many times is we've got to give up some other things. Our capacity, number three, and our competence to choose. Well, what about my good decisions, Pastor Jim? What if they're not necessarily wrong or sinful? It's worked before. I believe there's a crisis of competence that we get to. Well, you know, I've read the books. I've done the study. It's worked historically. And yet, Lot didn't make an unrighteous decision when he chose, did he? He just didn't inquire. We find three kings in a military alliance in 2 Kings, the third chapter. And they employ a military strategy of, 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 of surprise, of going through the desert, choosing a means of approach to the enemy that they wouldn't expect. And yet, there was a risk involved and they took it. But the risk was that they would run out of provisions, more specifically water, before they got all the way through the desert. And here they are, having made a very good military decision, but made a very poor one. Why? Because there's no inquiry of God. And Jehoshaphat, one of those three kings, he says, is there no prophet of the Lord of which we can inquire? All of a sudden, we get jammed up and we start finding God, do we not? Very interesting. God Speaking with Job, where were you, son? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And for the next two chapters begins to give all of these examples where Job's input was unnecessary to the creation process. As a matter of fact, Job's informed opinion was unnecessary for God to be God. And the question for us, do we bring the Holy Spirit along as a consultant to guide our good decisions? A panic button, a GPS, if you wish, when we get lost or jammed up? Or do we access the Holy Spirit in order to access the Father? Hmm. 
Ephesians 5 says, don't be stupid, but understand what the Lord's will is. The Holy Spirit allows us access to the will of God. Wow. WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's historical fact. He did what the Father told him to do. The issue is for you and I is what are you going to do? Wow. The challenge in our modern culture is the veracity of the information by which we attempt to exercise decision making. Fact or fiction? Deep state? Science. Red state, blue state, I mean, who knows? CNN, Fox, I mean, even the, the information that flows to us many times, it is so polarized that it's difficult to find truth in the midst of it. Then what are we left with? Hmm. Conceding control. You see, it's not about our leaning, learning, or leadership, but it's about lordship. This is where I'm going. You see, God doesn't by default bless your good decisions. I hate to be the one to tell you that. How many times that we step out and we do a thing, and then we ask God, if you wish, after the fact. Rather than preemptively, it's almost an afterthought. Oh, God, would you bless this amazing decision that I made? And we wonder, where is God? Oh, God doesn't love me. He's not blessing my incredible competence in decision-making. God, it wasn't sinful. Yes, it just wasn't me, son. The decisions that God blesses are his decisions. It's not any more complicated than that. It's his plans, not yours, that will prevail. They're the ones that he decided in advance for your life, for the outcome of a people, a nation, history. God has already decided. The issue for us is not our competence in great decision-making, but conceding control, letting, taking our hands off, and letting God be the blessed controller that he is. Lordship defined right there. We were told, come as little children. One of, one of the things that marks children is that most decisions are already made for them. Come on, parents. I mean, you, you, you don't, you don't, your two-year-old doesn't get up. Okay, what are we going to do today? What are you going to wear? What are you going to eat? Are we going to we big boy potty today or no? It's completely up to you. You want to see an insecure child? Watch a parenting philosophy that gives children that power of decision-making. Child psychologists have discovered that it's in the plethora of decisions that you actually breed insecurity in children. Give them too many things to play with. What do they do? They drag all of it to the middle of the room at one time and sit in the middle of it, and they're miserable because they don't know what to play with first or next. Wow. 
It's actually in our limiting the choices for our children to make that we bring the greatest sense, not only of paternity, but the greatest sense of security for them. Now, as natural parents, if we can figure that out, don't you think that our heavenly father, as a perfect daddy, has already figured that out on your behalf and on my behalf? I never intended for you, son, to make that decision. I never intended for you to carry the government of decision-making. We are called priests. It's a wonderful thing. But you realize in the priesthood, even the priests in fulfilling their functions, it was dictated by what God had told them to do in worship. The priests didn't have government. They had function. They had ministry. But they didn't carry government. Isaiah beautifully says that the government will be where? On his shoulders. What is one of the ways that we express that government is allowing choice to remain with him. And yet everything in us, as Americans, some in us rises up. No, sir. Okay. Let me also say this to you. Is that when we do this, being referential becomes reverential. When we refer our choice to his will, each time we do it, it is an act of worship. It's not just what we're led into here on a Sunday morning, but it's every decision that we make. God, is this what you would have? Every time we do that, and we are referring and preferring God's will to ours, it is an act of our worship. And you don't have to have a song to go along with that or raise hands to go along with that. It's saying, God, what do you say in this particular moment? Wow. And that love is always reflected in obedience. If you love me, you will obey. And my last point, all of this becomes a catalyst for our peace. You know, it's not just the plethora of choices, but it's the process of choosing that's often the thief of our peace. How many, how many of you get really twisted up because you don't feel like you've got the right information or read enough reviews to buy a good toilet brush off of Amazon? You know, it's not like you used to go into the store, there's one toilet brush, you buy it, you take it home, you do what needs to be done with the toilet brush. But now we've got 37 choices. And so we'll spend 20 minutes of our life reading somebody's inane comments about a toilet brush. And we feel like it's the only way we can make a good decision. And it robs us of our life and our peace. The story's told that, and I can't find the exact reference so I apologize Sears Roebuck the analog Amazon long before they had a thing called a catalog revolutionary in the early part of the 20th century you could buy everything from houses I don't know if you could ever buy cars from Sears but you could buy houses but they kind of started the whole 
e-commerce thing, if you want to know the truth about it. The story is told that a Native American tribe of individuals got hold of a Sears catalog. And they had lived for generations at peace. And all of a sudden now presented with all of this stuff they didn't even know existed. All of a sudden now with the choice of, you mean I could? And, and all of a sudden now there was strife and envy and murder among their people. And there wasn't there before. And it was simply on the basis of choice. What am I missing out on? I've got to have that. Wow. And yet, Jesus said, peace I give you. But not peace like the world gives. Oh, the world can fuel your consumer appetite. It can make you think that you're free because the world is giving you choices. But yet, at the same time, Jesus is beckoning us. And saying, would you rather have that or peace that I can give you? And part and parcel of receiving that peace is receiving my government. And what did I just define? Biblical discipleship and biblical lordship. Right there. It's not complicated. It's finding out what is the will of the Father and then doing it. That's it. You don't need to be a theologian to unpack that any further than right there. That's Bible faith. Choice. Part of how we've defined ourselves as Americans. But it begs a few questions. Are you an American Christian or a Christian in America? And that's not a play on words. That's an important distinction. In other words, is the place, the government, the culture, the mores of where you are dictating your Christianity? Or are you just a Christian that finds himself geographically assigned to this location for this season? Not unlike Israel finding themselves, be it Egypt, the wilderness, Babylon, still identified as a people. But yet they were told, don't become like them. Very interesting. Whose kingdom holds your primary allegiance, attention, and affection? And in the United States, the freedom to choose who leads, we call it voting. And that freedom, that choice has, perhaps this has been the most polarizing in modern history, both in the nation and, I might add, in the church. And the juxtaposition of the the person, personality, and or the policies they represent, at best, is a challenge, if not problematic. And if you're like I am, I don't know of anything that I have agonized in prayer more over than this decision, this choice. And everybody's leaning forward. Then tell me what to do, Pastor Jim. (laughs) Not on your life. But I can say this. I've sought heaven. And God's told me what to do. And I can do it 
with a clear conscience. Why? Because I have instructions from him. Amen? And we're not here to tell you what to do, but we're here to tell you a choice has been made. Heaven has decided. I want you to hear that. The only issue is for you and I to discern what that choice is and to get in alignment with it. Amen? Amen. Does God exercise His will through these earthly means of government, leadership? Absolutely. But let me tell you, that king will guide your process because he's a king that's never going to be subject to the democratic process. You and I would have voted him off the throne, God off the throne many times based on how he has responded to you and me. I want another God who moves faster and loves me more because I didn't get all 12 donuts in the box. Let me just tell you, it's a kingdom that will never be shaken and as a result, a king that will never be moved. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us here through the abundance of words this morning. Defining freedom is not just the exercise of choice. Competent decision-making based on either our intelligence, our competence, the information that flows to us, but God, we thank you. That it's about your competence, not ours. The same way that Jehoshaphat stood in front of that nation and said, we don't know what to do. God, many times that's the most holy thing we can declare in a given moment. God, I don't know. God says, thank you. I do. Watch this. God, we want to concede control. Because, God, when we take control, it's simply a manifestation. We don't trust you in that given area. And every one of us have areas in our lives that we're hanging on to because we don't fully trust you yet in that area. And, God, we want your peace. Not a version of that the world can give us, but we want yours. Supernatural, sovereign never-ending as we allow government to be yours. If you're here today and you're still carrying government for your life, you've never had that moment where you yielded, bit your knee and said, God, I'm not, I can't. God says, that's what I've been waiting for. Because I can be all that you will never be. And if that's you and you've never had that moment, that you have allowed the choosing that God's already done in and for you, that you say, yes, this can be that moment. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the step of sonship. If that's you, this is your moment. If you're in this room, you can slip your hand up. If you're virtual and online this morning, right where you are, pray this prayer. God, I give up that you might be God. 
come into my life. Forgive me because I know I've not lived anywhere close to that which you have designed for my life. Forgive me. Come live in me and I will come and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.